You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. This week, Pastor Josh Brady is back to break down chapter 11 of Romans. This chapter is answering the question, well, what about Israel? And concludes Paul's discussion about God's plan for the Israelites. We pray this week that this passage would increase our awe and reverence for God's control and power over our stories. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 11? Romans 11 is our text today. And I echo your prayer, my brother, for good coloring books. It's going to be a great day for adults and kids alike, because chapter 11 has got a lot of stuff in it. Hey, look, as you are finding your way, and before we jump into this text, I just want to to celebrate what what many of you know, because you saw it. Um, Over the weekend here at Broadmoor, we had a conference, a women's conference, called Fresh Grounded Faith. Uh, Fresh Grounded Faith brought in over 1,300 women from across different states to this room, and they were able to hear teaching and the gospel message proclaimed, and we want to celebrate this morning that we don't know where these women are from or what church they're going to belong to, but three women gave their life to Jesus Christ, so we want to celebrate that this morning. Yeah, give God a hand clap of praise. That is awesome. No doubt countless more were were forever changed because of what happened in this room over the course of the last two days, but I am very thankful, and you're going to hear more about that as we celebrate at the end of our service today. But as we jump in today, there is a lot to cover, but I want to remind us of where we are in, in Romans chapter 11. We are in the difficult chapters of this book. Uh, Remember, there are 16 chapters that make this this book up, and and when we look at it, we we can kind of compartmentalize the entire book into three three sections. The first sections, chapters 1 through chapter 8, is going to be the gospel section. That's going to be the section that is going to to give us a very clear understanding of, of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and how it affects those who believe it. Okay? Then, if you were to jump to chapter 12, which is where, if the Lord wills, we will be next Sunday, 12 through 16, it is how do we apply all that we learned in chapters 1 through 8. It is the, the incredibly fun application chapters of this letter. But where we find ourselves today is at the end of the troublesome three. And maybe, maybe you have heard it called that. Maybe you have just read it and thought, wow, these things seem a little weighty, seem a little bit heavy. Uh, chapter 9 chapter 10, and chapter 11. Well, if chapter 9 didn't leave you with enough questions to be asking, chapter 10 surely did. And if chapter 10 didn't give you enough questions, I promise you after today, you are going to have many, many more, and it is going to be absolutely okay, okay? So as we jump into this, we have to understand that all the Bible is given to us as the perfect and errant word of God. Okay, so, so we understand that. We understand that what it teaches. So when we started this letter, and even in, we jumped into chapter 9, we had two things that we said are going to be non-negotiables for us. God is sovereign. Man has free will. Those two things are not negotiable. The, the Bible is clear throughout all 66 books. Romans is clear throughout uh, its entire 16 chapters, okay? So when we look to that, we see that the Bible says what it says, and it means what it says. Well, as we jump into today, let me, let me give you a word of warning. If you know this chapter, this chapter is different. This one chapter is different than the rest of the 15 because most people who approach this 
will approach it with a lens already drawn up over their eyes, and they're going to begin to read these words through this lens. And the lens is called eschatology. That's a really big seminary word, but it simply means this, the study of last things. It would be this idea that we are going to read this chapter in some ways to be able to to figure out or to map out how things in the end are going to unfold so we can be better prepared for them, okay? So so there's a lot of folk who will come to this chapter and say, I know that this is how it's going to unfold on the end because I read it in this one verse in this chapter. If I could encourage you to pull back from that lens just for a moment. There's nothing in the Bible that is, that is given to us so that we may figure out the totality of who God is. For how can something created ever fully understand its creator? But I'm going to give you a different illustration to kind of maybe give you a new frame or new lens as we jump in to 36 verses in 25 minutes. It's going to be a great day. A few years ago, when we were living in Picayune, I was ministering to a family. They had just lost a loved one, and I'd, I'd gone to their house. I'd known them. They'd been a part of our church, but I'd never been to their house. I'd only heard stories of the magnific- magnificence of this, this place, this ranch, this, this hundred acres of, of plot of property in Pearl River County. So you pull up, and legitimately, it was so secluded, you have to drive through a pond to get there. Uh, they have a raised road that lives about six inches below uh, the water line, so people would think, well, I can't get to their house. You have to literally drive through the pond to get to the house. As I drive up to the house, of course, they have their six or seven or 12 cars, whatever, in the driveway, and they have a helicopter sitting in the other parked garage. And I thought, well, that's unique. You don't see that every day in Pearl River. County. Uh, so we go and, and we do the thing and it was, it was a beautiful thing. It was a, a senior saint who had loved the Lord for a long time. We were planning her, her celebration of life service and I, I talked to, to the guy and I said, hey, I noticed all of your rides. I think the coolest one I like is the helicopter. How often do you take it out? And he said, oh, well, you know, about two or three times a day. And I was like, what are you talking, what, what world are we living in? So anyway, he disappears for a minute and I'm talking to, to his family and then we finish and I pray and we walk out and he said, hey, pastor, you got about an extra hour? And I was like, depends on what you're about to tell me. So I walk out and I see the blades of this chopper start spinning. He had pulled this thing out of his driveway and cranked it up. I don't know if I want to get in a helicopter that sits in a driveway, but I jumped in. We get in, we go down his driveway right before we're going over the water, the, the helicopter lifts up and we begin to fly over Pearl River County. Now I'm born and raised Pearl River County. I know just about every road in Pearl River County. I know how to get to my house, to get to the church, to get to the grocery store, to get to the gym, to get back to the grocery store, to get back to my house. That was about my my whole trek when I was in Pearl River County. But when we went up in the air, everything was different. It was still Pearl River County. The roads were still the roads, but I didn't see the one road that I would take. I saw all the roads that made up the entire county. And he would go higher and further and faster. And the more that we went up, the more that we were able to see. And it became so increasingly, overwhelmingly beautiful. This county that I'd only see with my eyes at ground level, that if I could just get high enough, I could see all that makes this beautiful county up. 
So just to be elevated for a moment, to have a bird's eye view gave me a completely different perspective and a completely different appreciation for the county in which I grew up in my entire life. I had known the roads from an eye level view, but for one time in space, I was lifted up above it all and saw it all in its entirety and it took my breath away. Church family, that is chapter 11 of Romans. Your faith is your faith, and you have walked it, many of you, most of your entire life, and that's all that you know, what you've seen, what you've experienced, and you would say, well, I know this to be true because this is true for me. What Paul is going to do in chapter 11 is he's going to take us up to the 30,000-foot view and allow us to look over everything and see that what we thought was beautiful from our vantage point is going to be far more beautiful than we could ever hope, ask for, or imagine. So that's a big setup. To bring us to verse 1, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, we feel the helicopter begin to bring us from our vantage point to the big view of what God is doing across time, space, and all of history. The Apostle Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? His answer, by no means. Now, if, if according to the end of chapter 10, if you were here last week or if you just go back one verse and read it, this is, this is the way Paul ends it with a quote from an Old Testament scripture. He says, all day long has God held out his hands to the disobedient and to contrary people. In, in essence, that God is holding his hands out saying, come to me, but they won't. I love you. They would say, I don't love you back. Has God rejected his people for their obstinance, for their stubborn nature? Paul says, absolutely not, and he gives a very personal reason to him for his answer. Look at the last part of verse 1. He says, for I, myself, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's evidence for, for this very clear answer of absolutely not, he has not turned his back on God's people, is because he himself, who was a Jew of the Jews, was miraculously and graciously saved. Paul was an Israelite. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now let's remember how the apostle Paul was saved. Did Paul come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to repent of my sin and I want to put my faith and trust in you? No. Paul was on the road to Damascus, Saul at the time, on the road to the city of Damascus to go and find and kill those who were following Jesus Christ. And Christ came and met him on that road and blinded him. In the affliction, bringing him to salvation, something beautiful and gracious. God pursued Paul. God pursued and saved a Jew while he was on his way to go and kill those who were following the Christ. Why? Why would God do that? Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, if you weren't here a few weeks back, we tried to give that big term a very simple definition. Foreknowledge is God knew everything before everything. So, so in this, God, God knows what is going to happen. He knew his people. He knew what they would do. He knew how they would reject. And something incredible, he knows what's going to happen in the future. So God, uh, Paul gives a statement of fact that God has not rejected his people. But then he gives this incredible illustration, and this is gonna have great ties for us today. This illustration, and he quotes out of 1 Kings chapter 19, and this is when Elijah is on the run from Jezebel. This is after the incredible 
happenings of Mount Carmel, when, when God does this incredible work, and now he is running for his life. Back to the second part of, cha- uh, of verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Here's the quote, verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. So Elijah's fear is this. God, they've killed everybody. And he, he means it. He means everybody. He thought he was the only one. They've destroyed all your beautiful things, all the things that we set up to bring you glory. They've taken them all away, and I'm all that's left, and now they're after me. And God, it won't be long until I'm gone. God, have you rejected us? Have you turned your back on me? Verse 4. But what was God's reply to him? Here's God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's response to Elijah is this. I have thousands of people that you don't know about. You are not alone. I have not abandoned you. And so now Paul brings us back to to present day first century in verse 5. And he says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, we remember this letter. We, we have this letter, and there's this, this great tension in Rome against the Jew and the Gentile, both, both believers. But the tension is we, we need to fight for, for where we came from, the, the influences that our faith had on us. The Jewish followers of Christ would say, our worship is okay, but it would be better if it were more Jewish. The Gentile followers would say, our worship is great. We need to get more of the Jewish culture out. And there was a rift that was becoming more evident every day. And Paul writes this to remind them that the only thing that can fix what's broken in them and between them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells them, it may seem like, it may feel like the Jews are falling away, that that they are less and less coming to faith in Christ. But God has promised that there would always be a remnant. Paul is proof of that. And his promises are always good. Not only does God have a remnant, but they are chosen by grace. It's not by happenstance that they're there. And so what what we see when it says chosen by grace, God has sovereignly appointed a remnant to be there for a purpose. It's purposeful. It's not like the army is fading away because, because God is somehow becoming irrelevant. God is setting the stage with this remnant for something more powerful than the world has ever seen. So what's the big deal about grace? Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer based of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul is now bringing everything that he has written from the beginning of this letter back into our view. Salvation is given through God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through works or good deeds. The transition of the next verse leads us to feel the weight and the complexity of the teaching. It was almost like one of his readers raised their hand, or maybe in conversation at some point, raised their hand and said, hey, hey, Paul, say that again, but say it slower because that was a lot to take in. So Paul does just that in in verse 7. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. 
As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, so he quotes another Old Testament. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So this teaching simplified is simply this. Israel, the Jewish people, failed to obtain what they, were, what they were after. What were they after? They were after being righteous with God by their own good works. They couldn't do it. They had failed in that. But the elect had obtained it, how? Through faith in Christ. And everyone else was hardened in their sin. So Paul illustrates that by combining three verses. We, we don't have the time to go into them, but I want you to write these addresses down. Isaiah 29.10, Deuteronomy 29.4, and Psalm 69.22, verses 23. All right, so, so you have that. That is, that is the well in which the Apostle Paul paints the picture from. So whoever may have asked Paul to slow down and make it a little bit clear, more clear in his teaching, no doubt was, was feeling the weight of this truth now more than they had ever had. And so here would be the question that more than likely came to their mind. Everybody else was hardened? So that those who, who loved God but tried to, to, to be righteous with him by doing their own thing, they were hardened? And only the people who were saved were those who were elect? That, that seems weighty. I don't know what to do with that could be what they were feeling. The question may come up. Did God send the cornerstone? Did God send Christ in order to make his, his people, the Jewish people, stumble so that they would fall away? And, and why would God do that? Look what Paul says. It is unbelievably beautiful. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So, so, so God, did you trip them just so that they would, would be separated from you forever? Were, were you mean in doing that? Were you, were you just being a bully? Did you, did you just make them stumble so they couldn't get to you? Why would you do that? Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. All right, now, listen, I'm, I'm going to be clear with you before we jump into the remaining verses. This is bigger than us. This is the 30,000-foot view. This is from the top of the airplane. This is from the helicopter looking down over the city that what you once thought was absolutely true because you saw it with your own eyes is true, but there's so much more. God and his sovereignty isn't just working and willing your life. He is working and willing every soul on the planet. And it is a beautiful picture that he is bringing together for his glory and our good. So Paul says, by no means. Rather, their trespasses, their sin, their falling away, their stumbling has allowed salvation to come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. So, so God's plan, even in Israel's disobedience, through the disobedience of the Jews, God has opened the door for salvation to the Gentiles. Why would God open the door of salvation to the Gentiles? So that the Jews would become jealous. 
hear it this way, to stir them from their self-centered affections. Look at what Paul says next, verse 12. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? All right, so if the Jews' disobedience mean riches for the Gentiles, imagine what God will do when he brings all of his elect back to himself. Paul believed this with all that was in him. That belief made him want to live and act in a way that would win Jews back to God because he believed that everyone that came back to God would bring more glory to God and it would mean more good for humanity. The next verse explains his thought, his ministry lens, as it were, the reason that he lives how he lives. This is what the Apostle Paul begins to say in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul says that his ministry heartbeat, even though the the works for the Gentiles, is to live in a way that causes the Jews to become jealous of the Gentiles. But what specifically is is it about Paul's life that would cause the Jews to become jealous of the Gentiles? This This is what we see in Paul's ministry. By proclaiming all the more loudly and clearly the love that God has lavished on them. Our understanding of jealousy and theirs in this first century would be a little bit different. So if you're hearing that and it's like, hey, that doesn't sit right with me. That doesn't sound like it makes sense. Let me explain it this way. God's goal and Paul's goal, because it was God's goal, was not to make the Jews angry. It was not to make them resentful. Their goal was to make them thirsty for God's love and righteousness. And what is the purest expression of God's love and righteousness? It's Jesus Christ. So Paul wanted to live his, way, his life in such a way that made the Jewish people hunger and thirst for Christ. Oh, church family, that should be our life as well. That everything we do and all that we say and all that we take part in and how we, how we make money and how we spend money and how we order our lives should be done in such a way that makes the lost hungry and thirsty for the King of Kings. For they know the world we're living for is better than the one we've got. And Paul goes back and begins to plead again. That's what he says in verse 15. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Then he gives these illustrations. He says, if if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the whole branches. So, So here Paul speaks about the remnant, the small group that God has promised would always love him. And the promise of future restoration for all of God's chosen people with two illustrations. The first one is the dough offered as a first fruit. So first fruit is this idea of if if there's a whole loaf, then you take a pinch off the loaf and you offer. It's the first part, the best part. But here would be the logic. If the first pinch is holy enough to give to God, then the rest of the lump is holy enough to give to God. Same for the the second illustration. If the root system is holy, then the rest of the tree that is fed by that root system will be holy. 
But he continues this illustration to real life. Look at verse 17 and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, wild olive shoot means that you are an olive tree. This is the example he's giving in an olive tree. Wild olive trees didn't produce fruit. They were useless. So going with that understanding, although, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. All right, so brothers and sisters, we must always remember this. We do not support the root, the root supports us. Here's another way to hear that. We do not give life to God, God gives life to us. One more time. Without us, God lives. Without him, we die. This understanding should help us stay far away from religious arrogance. What would that look like in our, in our context today? What would it look like even then, but still true today? It would be this, God needs me in this church. Man, I'm God's gift, you, you should hear me speak, you should hear me sing. Man, I, I can dress real nice, I can, I can, I can watch my language. Look, look, this church needs me. No, it doesn't. This church doesn't need you. God, listen, hear, hear me out. You are not God's gift to God. I, I think that's important for us, but, but hear me out. God desires us. God desires all that we are, but we must understand who we are and what we have rightly. What we have doesn't go to God so God can now make his pockets big. God's pockets are already big. He doesn't own the one cattle on the one hill. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God does not need us, but God uses us in a mighty way. We'll see that as we move forward. So Paul goes on, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So that's what Gentiles would say, and that that would be true. That's what Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because, now this is incredibly important for our theological understanding, church. They were broken off because of their, what's the word? Unbelief. There are a lot of times that we will get into these middle chapters of Romans and say, well, they were broken off because God told them they couldn't be a part of it anyway, so they never had a chance. No. They had an opportunity to respond in faith, and they didn't. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through or because of your faith. So don't become proud, but fearful. Remember, we are, we are going through this book as a church so that God may strengthen our faith by making clearer what we believe. Romans is our theological book of all the 66. This is the book that gives us clear instructions on why we believe what we believe. So here's another nail it down convictional truth. The reason the branches were broken off, the reason the Jews were broken off, is only because of their unbelief. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. The only reason Gentiles are ever grafted in is because of their faith in Christ. And the end of verse 20 gives us a very healthy warning. Do not become proud, but fear. Wait, why why should we fear? Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
God's word is very clear, church. If your faith is not in Christ, you are lost. If your faith is in Christ, you are saved. Paul gives this illustration for a reason, a point towards God's character, as it were. Look at verses 22 and following. He says, note then, because of this truth, because of what you have just seen in front of you, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. Provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, so this goes back to the Jews who have fallen away, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, that means bearing fruit, how much more of these natural branches will be grafted into their own olive tree? He loves the illustration of the olive. God's character, though, is twofold here. He is kind and he is severe. There's a lot in these few verses. First thing that potentially came to your mind is this. Wait, can we be grafted in and then cut off? Does that mean we can lose our salvation? No. Hang with me for just a minute. Because what I'm about to tell you is eternally important. Your salvation isn't proven by what you did. It is proven by what you continue to do. Wait a minute. Take a deep breath. I did not say your salvation is gained or applied by what you continue to do. That has always been and will always be because of Christ. What I am saying and what this passage of Scripture is teaching us is your born-again state will be proven. It will be shown by how you live. A better way to understand this, it will be proven by what you bring glory to. If we went back to, to, to last week in chapter 10, and, and there was this proclamation that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we understood that that wasn't meant to be for one moment in time, but that was to be for an understanding of how we live our life. The test isn't, does your mouth say Christ is Lord? The test is, does your life prove Christ is Lord? Today, right now, and with every breath that you have left, here's the thing that we need to remember and nail down as well. Do not measure your faith by something you thought about or did when you were much younger, but instead measure your faith by what you believe today and how you live today. I believe with all of my heart, if you are saved, you will forever gloriously be saved. It is because of God's salvation that brought you to him, and it will be God's salvation that keeps you with him. But I do believe that there are many those of us who are very religious, who have a confused view on what religion and relationship mean. And Romans is incredibly clear. You can miss heaven by a mile if you believe religion is what brings you there. 
It is relationship with Christ alone that does that. But relationship with Christ alone, listen to me, isn't just something that happens when you're eight. It's not just something that happens one point time in space and it affects your life no more. Your relationship with Christ certainly happens in a moment in time. Justification happens in a moment in time, but it's from there that this life of faith begins to grow. And so if we look at our life and there is no proof of growing faith, then we should be very, very uncomfortable. God is kind to save But God is severe against unbelief. Both of these things are true. After these past three weeks, you may be sitting here thinking, this this is too much. Is God sovereign or does man have free will? Both. Am I saved? And if I am, can I lose my salvation? If you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But Paul is going to help us out to help us remember to not get caught up on this blip in the timeline of eternity and miss the bigger picture that's more beautiful and brings more glory to God than we ever thought possible. In the following verses, Paul is going to help us get clearer on the big picture. Look at verse 25. Least you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So so understanding verse 25 is so important as we finish out this chapter and live the rest of our life. God has not called us to figure him out and all of his ways out. He's called us to trust him and trust him in all of his ways. In all this way, all Israel, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that's Israel, and will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, talking about the Jewish people. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In verse 29, if you're you're a highlighting person or an underlining person, you want this one. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will never go back on his word. His promises are always yes and amen. Verse 30, 31, and 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So so what Paul is saying here is, I want you to understand the bigger view. You can't see it on on the street level, but if you get higher up, you see this. The reason the Jews were disobedient, God used their disobedience to draw Gentiles in, and God's gonna continue to use their disobedience to open the door for them to come back in. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, this is huge. Humanity has free will to choose, and in there, in our freedom, we have chosen rebellion. In our rebellion, God has consigned, that that means given everyone over to, that Romans 1 language, to disobedience. Why would he do that? 
The end of verse 32 makes it incredibly clear that he may have mercy on all. So listen to this. Even in our sin, even in our rebellion, God is working in our life for salvation, for his mercy to rule and to reign. So chapter 11 summed up as this, in all the ways that you can see, in all the ways that you can't see, God is working to redeem this broken world back to himself. We can be tempted, and this is a real temptation for us, to want to do it ourselves, to say to God, I've seen how you do it. I've seen the roads. I know how to get from my house to the church. I know how to get from the church to the grocery store, from the grocery store to the Mexican restaurant, to the restaurant back to my house. God, I got it from here, I don't need you. And it's in that moment that God elevates you above it all and he allows you to see, hey Josh, you don't know anything, but I got you. I got you and I got everybody and you just trust me and you worship me because of it. So as we look to this, if this book has taught us anything, anything at all, we are far more broken than we will ever imagine. And God is far greater, gracious and glorious than we could ever imagine. And to that end, Paul would give us one of the most powerful doxologies, that is statements of praise ever recorded. No doubt when the readers heard this, their hearts were stirred to praise. And I pray that that would be for us as well. As our worship team comes back up and we move to a response time. Verse 33 to 36 is the doxology. This is what it says. When you read it, don't don't read it as if a song lyric is there. Read it as if you have an apostle who is writing to a people he desperately loves, and he has just laid out this beautiful grand narrative of what God is doing. And in that narrative, he has lifted them up for them to see. And no doubt, many of them are scared of biblical heights. And when they get up there, they get nervous and they start shaking. And they don't know what to do with what they've just seen. They don't know how to respond. And Paul says, I got you. This is how you respond when you see the glory and the magnificence of God on display. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we come to the end of this incredible chapter and we move into a response time, there's a few more things I want to share. Number one, God's magnificent sovereignty should drive our hearts to worship, our lips to sing his praise. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, has invited us to know him and to love him and to be known and loved by him. In every facet of our lives, in the good and in the bad, God has been and continues to work to draw us to himself. And church, there's a day coming. We don't have the full picture yet, but we do have glimpses when Jews and Gentiles will be drawn back to him. It will be much like what Ezekiel saw in the valley of dry bones. He looks over the valley and they're lifeless, hopeless, and death. 
And by God's grace, those bones, all the bones will begin to rattle. And life will stand where there was once death. And God's army will rise and the whole earth will stand and shout for God's glory. And that day will be mighty and powerful. But until that day, we have a job before us. And sometimes it feels like that job is daunting. More than we can handle, and and it should be. You should not be able to do the call of God on your life without God. But God has promised to be with us. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. That even in the Great Commission, He says, I have been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I will be with you until the very end of the age. So what do we do from here? What is our response to this? Let me be clear what our response should not be. It should not be to run home and to get your end times maps and roll those bad boys out and say, now I know. I know, I know when the Jews are gonna come back in and I know when this period of time is gonna happen, so I'm not gonna be unaware. Listen to me, that's not what this chapter's for. This chapter is to allow you to see that what God is doing in your life, he is doing for all of his creation. And he is offering salvation to all that would come. It is his desire that no one would perish. And then as he brings us back down to our daily life and sends us back out on mission, we now have a fuller view of what's going on around us. And so if we understand how God is speaking to us clearly in some days, calling us to action, he's doing the exact same for countless millions of other people. And we are invited into the process to advance the kingdom with them. So I end with this line from my absolute favorite hymn. I don't know if I found a hymn that I love more. It's called Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to to trust and obey. There's so many times, for whatever reason, we like to complicate it. This is the response. Will you trust that God is sovereign? And will you obey his word that he has trusted to you? He didn't ask you to figure him out. He just asked you to be obedient. He didn't ask you to get your life in order first. He said, come to me just as you are, and I will make you fishers of men. So the question is today, not do you fully understand the creator? You can't. But will you trust him? And will you be obedient to the word that he has placed before you? Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful view of your sovereignty and what you are doing. And 
Lord, it is not my heart to ever thank you for people being disobedient to you, but I do thank you for allowing us in. And I thank you, God, that one day by your grace, you are going to draw us all back to yourself. And what that looks like, we don't know. I'm just going to be happy to be called in that number. For you are good. And I love you with all that I am. And I just wanna, I wanna be faithful to you. I wanna be obedient to you. I wanna trust you with my entire life. And God, I pray that across this room. Help us trust and obey. For we know there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So that is the call to response today. Help us, Father, to respond rightly. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. And we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?